Well, before we turn in our Bibles to Psalm 12, I'd ask you to turn with me in your hymnal to page 872. I'd actually like us to confess our faith together uh, using the words of one of our catechism questions. And this is a particular question that I think has uh, great relevance uh, as we consider our psalm this evening. So, page 872 in our hymnal. This is Shorter Catechism, question 38. You know, we contemplate the great benefits we have through Christ our Lord, uh, not only in this life, but also in the life to come, that there are benefits uh, that we have not even seen yet. Uh, things that Scripture uh, teaches us. And here, I think we are given a, a terse summary of the benefits we receive at uh, the resurrection uh, from the dead. So I'll ask the question, ask that we confess our faith together. Shorter Catechism, question 38. What benefits do believers receive from Christ uh, at the general resurrection? That is, the resurrection uh, of the dead on the last day. Together. At the resurrection... Believers, being raised up in glory, shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment, and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. An open acquittal, that justification that we possess now by faith, it's not that we'll become more justified on the last day, but it will be made open for the whole world to see, even those who spread malicious lies about us this day. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the reading of God's Word in Psalm chapter 12. Psalm 12. To the choir master, according to the Sheminit, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master? Who is Lord over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I now will arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is God's word. Gracious God and Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word, that we might be faithful to believe all of your promises, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? Total load of baloney, don't you? And I uh, know it all. We know what it is like to be the object of slander. We know the terror that it brings to hear malicious words, false words being said about us uh, can cause anxiety, stress, fear, loss of sleep, depression, right? You don't need to duke it out on the playground to bring a person to their knees. All it takes is a whisper. All it takes is a false rumor to destroy one's entire 
life. It's not just something that kids experience on the playground and then people grow up and learn to act better. I think it's something that we've all experienced in the workplace, even as adults. And I think there's a reason why the business world is called a cutthroat enterprise, where every day coworkers conspire to backstab fellow employees to gain the upper hand, to secure the business deal, to procure that coveted job promotion. I think it's fascinating that the, the bully is not the most vicious adversary that concerns us. It is the so-called friend who smiles to your face, flatters you with uh, nice words, all the while plotting behind your back, does far more damage than any schoolyard bully ever could do. This is the case, in fact, of human nature, that beneath the flattering lip lurks a treacherous heart. And we see that it seems to be so prevalent It leads many in the midst of such turmoil to ask, who could ever be trusted? How could I ever trust again? What we see in the psalm, the Messianic king groans under such a betrayal. As flatterers seek to destroy the righteous, not by sword, but by speech. Here the psalmist contrasts the corruptive speech of men with the pure and clean words of the living God. And he calls out and calls us to cry out to him, uh, him who will keep us safe from slander. So you could see this psalm can be divided into two halves. First, we could consider the matter of the flattering lips in verses 1 to 4. And then by contrast, those pure words of verses 5 to 8. The flattering lips and the pure words As we've been working our way through the Psalter for the past year, uh, we cannot help but notice the escalating wickedness in each successive chapter. Think about it. Psalm chapter 10, the wicked were outliers in the community, plundering the poor along the periphery of the villages and towns. In Psalm 11, the wicked have now uh, taken the capital, as it were. They have overturned the foundations of a just society. But now here in Psalm 12, the wicked have won. Or so it appears. The righteous have seemingly vanished from among the children of Adam. It is a universal problem. It is not restricted to one town, one city, one nation. This is one of the passages that Paul references in Romans chapter 3 when he speaks of uh, the corrupt uh, uh, nature of the whole human race. Among the whole scope of the sons of Adam, that is, there's a universal aspect to this. And that is, when it says children of men, it is bar Adam in Hebrew. It's the sons of Adam. Among the sons of Adam, where are the righteous to be found? It is as if Sodom and Gomorrah characterize the whole earth, not simply two cities in the ancient Near East. And yet at the same time, it is a reality that runs contrary to our expectations that we might get from reading the first two chapters of the Psalter. Think about Psalm chapter 1. Didn't God promise that the righteous would be established as a mighty oak? 
that bears fruit along the sides of the, of the majestic river. Now the question is, where are the righteous to be found? Didn't God promise that the wicked would be scattered like dust in the wind for those who refused to bow the knee to the Lord's anointed Messiah? Now, what do we have? We have the Lord's anointed Messiah saying there are no righteous left to be found on the face of the earth. Didn't the psalmist say, didn't the Lord say through the psalms that His anointed Messiah would inherit the nations and shatter the wicked? Why then is it that the faithful have nearly disappeared. Has God ceased to be faithful to His Word? Has His promises been nullified? What happened to the righteous? Were they mowed down by a massive army? Were they hacked to bits by the town bully? We find no. They were destroyed by flattering lips. Right, if you were to catalog a list of the heinous sins, uh, the most heinous sins, what would you put, let's say, in the top three? Murder? Adultery? Rape? Theft? I've mentioned this before. I'm going to mention it again, and probably this will not be the last time that I mention it, but if you catalog using the Ten Commandments, every commandment violation in the Psalter, hands down, it is the sins of the Ninth commandment that pop up over and over and over again. The psalmist is concerned, above all else, with the wickedness of the flatterer and the slanderer. And yet, in this day and age, we, our society treats it as not that big a deal. Don't we? It's what we might call a socially respectable sin. You watch any number of gritty dramas on TV, it's all about uh, kind of that, again, that cutthroat business model. It is almost expected that that is the way you will act in corporate America. It's seen not just in the workplace, it runs all the way down to the elementary school. Not just schools, but you see that it is rampant in so many churches across the globe. From ladies' Bible studies to elder session meetings to the Twitter accounts of celebrity preachers, nobody really knows how to tame their tongue. James himself says this. It's, the tongue is like that rudder on a ship. It's small, uh, but it can, it can set on fire the course of one's entire life. I don't know how many people here have ever been in a knife fight. I have not. We might not know what it's like to be stabbed, but I think so many of us know what it feels like to be backstabbed, don't we? Words hurt. Bullies might hurt with their fists, but physical bruises heal much quicker than emotional scarring. Words can take years to recover from, especially that well-placed word. Intentionally given to shatter one's spirit especially when these words come from the mouths of so-called friends. And it is a problem that pervades the whole human race. The faithful have vanished from among the sons and daughters of Adam. Flattery is a universal problem. I'm not calling out any individual here in this room. I'm saying that this is a problem that resides with all of us. This is a human tendency. We've all experienced it. My guess is we're all guilty of it as well. It runs deep. 
we suffer not only from a double tongue, as it were, saying one thing out one end of the mouth and then another thing out the other, there is the problem of the double heart you see here in verse 2. It runs so deep, you can look at the person and ask, which, which one is the true self? They seem to have two different hearts. You know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a man who suffered deeply under Stalin's Soviet regime, once wrote this, that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either. Rather, that line between good and evil passes through every human heart and through all human hearts. It's so interesting, uh, not interesting is not the right word, so prevalent these days, even in political discourse, to treat one's moral status and to align it with their political allegiance or affiliation. What we see here is a war of words, a war of words, where the mouth is the instrument of destruction. This is what the psalmist prays to the Lord about, where the tongue sets the entire course of one's life on fire. It stains the whole body, James writes, and it is set on fire by hell itself. We all know what it is like, many times over, to be flattered and to know that person is plotting behind us. It gives you a glimpse of what health itself feels like. It is full of deadly poison, James Wright. It is a restless evil. My brothers, these things ought not to be this way. And yet the world treats it as if it is normal and par for the course. The flatterer praises his prey to his face. But behind him he seeks his destruction that he might exalt himself, that he might come out on top in the end. Verse 4, with our lips we shall prevail. It is the means of the victory of the wicked. Our lips are with us. So who could ever be master? Who can be Adon? Where we get the word Adonai. Who could ever be the master over us? Not even God, they think, can rule over them. They are arrogant words. They are boastful words. They are blasphemous words. And it's this characterization that describes the very character of the little horn of Daniel, the man of lawlessness, the great beast of Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 13. He speaks great things. He makes great boasts, arrogant and blasphemous words. And by these words, he prevails against the saints. It has been one of the primary weapons by which the saints have suffered between the two advents of our Savior. Fake news spread regarding the people of God. What better way to destroy the church than to discredit the church in the eyes of men you think of the early church where whispers abounded that Christians were cannibals. They were incestuous, orgiastic. You read during the Reformation and the libel that was leveled against the Protestant reformers that they were libertines and rebels. They promoted all sorts of licentious behavior. All lies. Perhaps the question we can ask today 
is what lies are being spread about the church and what lies are being believed about the church among the sons of men. It doesn't help that many of the criticisms that have been leveled against the church have happened to be true. But how do you discern the true from the false? How many people refuse to enter church doors because of the lies that they have been fed regarding the nature of Christianity? How many people within the walls of a church speak well of the church in their midst and then slander those members behind its back? It is a betrayal of the highest order. And hence, we find the central prayer of this psalm. Save, O Lord, for the righteous are vanishing. The flatterer, using his words as a means of destroying the righteous. The psalmist prays for deliverance, but in Scripture, salvation is always a two-edged sword. For the flip side of salvation for the slandered is found in the judgment to be rendered upon the slanderer. You see that over here in verses 3 and 4. It's vivid imagery. He prays here, cut off their lips. I want you to think about that imagery for a moment. It is grisly. Yet the psalmist prays that this take place, that the Lord does this. Because these flatterers have boasted, not simply against David, but they boast against the Almighty, who is to be our Lord, who is to be our Adonai. Nobody. They are the wicked of Psalm 10 and Psalm 11. They do saying foolishly in their heart that there is no God that either He is non-existent or if He is, He is unable to reckon with the power of our lips. Their speech betrays their allegiance. By their words, they have taken counsel together against the Lord and against His Messiah. They may flatter the Lord with their lips, but secretly they plot His overthrow. How often do we see that in the Gospels? Among the Pharisees, we read time and time again, I'm saying, hey, good teacher. Oh, we know you're good. We have a question for you. And they begin to ask Jesus a question. And then uh, the author of each of the Gospels will say some comment like this, that secretly they were trying to entrap Jesus with their questions. Jesus knows what it is like to face flattery. To look at square in the face. What of Judas Iscariot? Part of Christ's inner circle, the church treasurer even, and yet secretly plotting behind Christ's back, betraying Him with flattering lips, even a kiss. So the Messiah prays that the Lord will render judgment upon those who have set their face against the righteous and here in verses 5-8, to eight, we see the Lord's response to the prayer of the Messianic King. You see that here in verses 5-8. to eight. Here the Lord says that the, the poor are plundered by the words of flatterers. It suggests that these men will smile and wave to the vulnerable in church or in synagogue, but they are perjuring the courts to take what little that the poor still have. 
It's the same thing that we've seen in Psalms 10 and 11. Corruption of the court system, tilted towards exploiting the poor, the widow, and the orphan. Now the righteous and the needy groan under the weight of such wickedness and such oppression. But if the wicked have packed the courts, if they have overthrown the pillars of justice in society, where can the righteous turn for safety? That was the question of Psalm chapter 11, as we considered just two weeks ago. And yet we find the answer here where the Lord says, because they groan, I will arise and act. Because there is no one to do justice in the land, I will be the one who is the good shepherd. It's the same thing the Lord says to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 34. Because the elders are devouring the sheep, I myself will be the good shepherd, and I will devour the fat and the strong. I will arise and contend with the flatterer myself. Verse 5, I will place the oppressed, the afflicted. I will place him in the safety for which he sighs and which he groans. This is a verse that's very, very difficult to translate. One commentator provided this as an alternative translation. Says, I will set up for salvation a witness for him, a witness for the poor and the afflicted. We need to think about this. If the wicked have packed the courts with false witnesses, the Lord's solution, the means of his redemption is what? That he will provide a true witness that will vindicate the righteous, that will expose the duplicity of the flatterer. That is the idea behind this particular passage. What a contrast we see here in these verses. In the first four verses, we read of the sliminess of flattering lips. You know, you read these verses and you feel dirty. You feel violated at the speech of the flatterer. But in verses 5 and 6, we hear of the cleansing power of God's speech. It is pure. It is refined. Refined seven times over. It's Hebrew imagery for complete purity. There is no shadow. There is no corrupt speech that issues from the Lord's mouth. All that He says is good and pure. There is no dross. There is no deception. What the Lord has promised, that will He do. The whole human race might seek to defile you with their words, but not the God of Israel. His words are true. He is to be trusted. He is a fortress for the afflicted and the needy. He will come and He will save. He is a stronghold for those in times of trouble, even those who are suffering the malicious weight of gossip and slander. To those who are brokenhearted, He will come and save. Psalm 34, 18. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like You who delivers the afflicted from Him who is too strong for Him and the afflicted and the needy from Him who robs Him? What God is there like our God? What rock is there like our rock? How practical this psalm is, even for the children. To come home in tears from the playground hearing the words that have been spoken about you from those you thought were your friends. The Psalms teach us how to respond. They teach us how to pray. 
We are told of the Lord's character, Psalm 37, that the Lord loves justice. He does not forsake His godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. Our God is the good shepherd. He is the faithful guardian. He will protect His precious flock from the ravaging wolves of this generation forever. He will keep you safe from slander. Calvin, in commenting on this psalm, writes this, Though the number of the righteous is small, God is their protector forever. The question we have then is how? How does the Lord protect us? How does He keep us safe in the midst of such maliciousness and wickedness that abounds so often through the course of our lives? Well, as we saw earlier, He promises to give safety for that safety for which His people long and groan and sigh by providing us with a true and faithful witness. And that true witness is Himself, His Son, and His Spirit. I'm going to consider Christ for a moment in His earthly ministry. All the lives that Christ suffered as he goes from town to town, think of the whispers that surrounded his miraculous birth. The ridicule he faced from whole villages such as Bethsaida and Chorazin. The lies spread among the religious leaders in the capital city. Every aspect of Christ's ministry was met with the weight of lies. Betrayed by one of his close friends, Judas, Judged under the cover of night in a mock trial, right? What court meets in the middle of the night? Not a lawful one. It's something you should be getting away, you should be walking away from as you read the end of every gospel. This is not a legally sanctioned meeting. Witnesses packing the courts, spreading lies to claim that the sinless Son of God was himself a blasphemer. At the beginning of Christ's final week of ministry, he was welcomed as he entered Jerusalem by uh, neighbors who claimed, Hosanna, glory to the God in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And by the week's end, those crowds now saying, crucify him. Give us Barabbas in instead. Barabbas, the son of the father, who is the true son of the father. Well, we don't think it's Jesus It's the weight of lies. What flattery. Flattering lips of men who called Jesus good teacher by day and yet plotted his execution by night. Falsely condemned and crucified, suffered and died at the hands of flatterers. And yet, what happened three days later? He was resurrected. And 1 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that that was the vindication of his righteousness. It was proof that Christ was not, in fact, who those slanderers and flatterers said that he was. In Peter's Pentecost sermon, he says this, the hands of lawless men crucified him. Peter is speaking of government officials. He calls them lawless men. Therefore, it was not possible for Christ to be held by the pangs of death. 
In other words, Peter's point there is that the father vindicated his son from those malicious lies, those false accusations, and the vindication came in raising Christ from the dead by the power of the Spirit. You're crucified, put to death as a blasphemer, and then three days later you rise from the dead? It's pretty good evidence that perhaps those witnesses that condemned you were, in fact, false. And what we find in the New Testament, what it teaches us is that for everyone who is united to Christ, what was true for Christ on Resurrection Sunday will be true for every believer on the Day of Judgment when Christ returns. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 will speak of Christ's resurrection as the first fruits, the guarantee of our resurrection. The New Testament speaks of an escalation in human wickedness as the final day approaches. And that includes an escalation in human flattery and treachery. Jude puts it like this, When the Lord comes to execute judgment on all ungodliness, He will search out the grumblers and the malcontents, those who follow their own sinful desires, those loud-mouthed boasters who show favoritism to gain advantage. It's the very thing the psalmist is describing here in Psalm 12. And it continues and escalates and escalates and escalates men and women wanting simply to have their ears tickled in church rather than to receive the pure word of the living God. What we find is that on that final day, the Lord will vindicate the righteous by raising them to life everlasting and cutting off the lips of the flatterer forever. God will have the last word. And as God stands as judge, He has the last word regarding your righteousness. And he looks on his children, those who have trusted in Christ, and says, that child is as righteous as my beloved son, Christ Jesus himself. You think of Zechariah chapter 3. It's either 3 or 6. I think it's 3. Zechariah has the vision of Joshua, the great high priest, standing before the heavenly council, and he is covered in his own human excrement. And standing right beside him is Satan himself, laying accusations against Joshua, the high priest. They are not false accusations. Those are, in fact, true. What does the Lord do? How does he respond He turns to Satan, the accuser, and tells him to stuff it. He tells him to shut up. And then he commands that clean garments be put on his high priest. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God is your vindication. He is the one, even if we suffer under the weight of lies our entire lives, the Lord will expose those things and make them known. If not in this life, which He does render His judgment in this life, but even if not, it will come in the next, where we'll be openly acknowledged 
and acquitted of the things that we have and have not done in the body. Matthew Henry, in commenting on this psalm, says this, This psalm furnishes us with good thoughts for bad times. It teaches us what and how to pray in the midst of great trial. The psalms instruct us where we ought to set our eyes in the midst of deep betrayal. The wicked may prosper in this life. Injustice may prevail throughout the land, but there is a higher court. Do you suffer under the weight of slander? There are so many for whom the holiday season is difficult because it is hard to be with family members because one of the most vicious things is to see family members do this to one another. If that's you, entrust yourself to the Lord. Look to Christ to be your vindication. His opinion matters a lot more than that of the flatterer. His words are pure. They're refined. He can be trusted even when nobody else can be. The righteous may groan now, but for those who wait with eager expectation, the Lord will vindicate His children in His good timing according to His good pleasure. If not in this life, then surely in the life to come at the resurrection from the dead. In the meantime, we have a particular duty that we must perform, just as Christ did. When he suffered for us, dying as our representative, Peter says he died leaving us an example as well. When he was slandered, he did not retaliate. He did not slander in return. He did not verbally abuse his accusers. But rather, he prayed and entrusted himself to his Father who does all things justly. He prayed, what? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. What a tall order that is for us. To pray that our enemies will repent before it is too late. And to know that if they do not repent, the Lord will deal with it in due time. But we must remember that we're guilty of these sins as well. We cannot let self-righteousness twist and skew this psalm. The whole human race is guilty of flattery. If we have ever sinned against someone else in this regard, now's the time to make those things right. To approach that person and say, you know what, I talked about you in ways that I should not have. Please forgive me. Let us entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father does all things justly. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that your word would uh, light the path before us, that we might know how to act when we have been sinned against, but also how to act when your word exposes our own sin and the, own, your, uh, the folly of our own hearts. Grant us the grace to repent, for repentance is so hard. It cannot be done apart from the work of your Spirit. Give us comfort in the time and midst of trial and affliction. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.